Hey everyone. As you know, I'm a huge fan of living a healthy lifestyle, including taking the right supplements. Collagen is one of my favorite supplements. It is the most abundant protein in the human body. As we grow older, we break it down faster than we can replace it. This loss affects our skin, nails, hair, muscles, joints, and tendons, bones, and gut, making us look and feel old. Totem Voss is a wellness company that created a collagen chew for a real-life person, the 78-year-old mother of the founder. As a result, the quality is unrivaled. Totem Voss chews contain equal part deep-sea Icelandic cod, domestic grass-fed beef, and organic chicken bone broth, along with companion ingredients such as vitamin C for full collagen synthesis. These varied sources address a greater range of collagen needs within the body. Their customers are reporting results with such problems as rosacea, osteoarthritis, osteoporosis, degenerative disc disease, as well as improved hair, skin, and nails. Practitioners are finding the juice to be an effective tool in restoring gut health. You can find Totem Voss, that's T-O-T-U-M-V-O-S, at getchews.com. That's getchews.com. Use code DRDIVA, that's D-R-D-I-V-A, for an additional 10% off your first order. There's no risk to using Apollo as often as you like. People, usually when they first get it, they use it multiple times a day, every day, and wear it all day. And then over time, somewhere between three and six months, we start to see people really taper off their usage to use the device more intentionally. So instead of using it all day, they'll use it a couple times a day, specifically to wake up and to fall asleep, or specifically to fall asleep and to focus. And that has been really interesting because people we're seeing are not becoming dependent on it. They're using the tool to teach them how to do this on their own. I think that's really the goal of all of this is to empower people to understand that we have the ability to change the way we feel. Hello, this is Dr. Diva Nagula. Welcome to From Doctor to Patient, where our goal is to bring you topics of discussion that will educate you on the various healing modalities to help balance the mind, body, and spirit. Hello, and welcome to another episode of From Doctor to Patient. Today, I'm pleased to have Dr. David Rabin. He is a board-certified psychiatrist and neuroscientist, is the co-founder and chief innovation officer at Apollo Neuroscience, the first scientifically validated wearable system to improve heart rate variability, focus, relaxation, and access to meditative states by delivering gentle, layered vibrations to the skin. In addition to his clinical psychiatry practice, Dr. Raven is also the co-founder and executive director of the Board of Medicine and a psychedelic clinical researcher currently evaluating the mechanism of psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy in treatment-resistant mental illness. Dr. Dave, thank you so much for being on the show this afternoon. How are you? Good, thanks. Uh, thanks so much for having me, Dr. Diva. It's a pleasure to be here with you. You know, I really have been looking forward to this conversation because, yeah, you're like my hero because you've accomplished so many things, you know, in the field of medicine and are on the cutting edge of psychedelic-assisted therapies in regards to research. And also, you've, you're, you're an inventor. So, yeah, how do you balance all these things? I mean, what does your day look like? That's, that's very kind of you, uh, first off. I, I really appreciate that. And 
Um, but I think, you know, I, I'm in the relatively early stages of all of this, you know, I, by no means, you know, at the end of my career. So I'm, I'm really, you know, I'm working with a lot of people who are like-minded to start a lot of important, what we all agree to be, you know, and the we, the greater we is, you know, the teams that I work with in these different uh, organizations, like the Board of Medicine and Apollo Neuroscience and uh, my clinical team at my clinical practice. And, and we all see eye to eye on the way we believe health should be delivered. Mm-hmm. And um, that we all need to focus on, for instance, the least harmful treatments first, the most safe treatments first as the first line, which is, you know, typically tends to include a lot of natural interventions, a lot of mindfulness interventions, psychotherapy and things of that nature. And then, you know, stemming out into more gentle medicinal approaches rather than going directly into something that could actually cause a significant amount of side effects for someone or make their symptoms worse. And so I think that core principle being something that we all are passionate about because we've all been touched to some extent by the opioid crisis, by the PTSD crisis, by COVID, right? There's nobody who hasn't been affected by this this stuff that's going on. And these are public health issues that actually have solutions, but it's hard to see the solutions when you're stuck just looking at it from one perspective. So we, you know, starting out in 2014, I think when we really started doing a lot of this work, it was about surrounding ourselves, believe it or not, with as many people from different disciplines who are not our discipline, as well as people in our discipline who are experts, but people from lots of different disciplines, people from, you know, psychiatry, but also the business of medicine, right? The business of health insurance, business in general, financial financing, marketing, um, engineers, uh, software, hardware engineers, people who we normally wouldn't interact with, who all have their own perspective on the way to do things. And then we take the best of those ideas and bring them together. And everyone, once every, you know, you come to consensus and everyone agrees, you end up having a much more powerful thing that you're all striving for and you're much more likely to get there. Exactly. And, and it's a great thing to be around people who are like-minded because it makes things so much easier and it flows so much better. And as I've been doing this work in you know spiritual growth and development for the last two and a half plus years, it feels like the people that I used to surround myself with, I don't really connect with anymore. And whether it's because I'm vibrating on a higher level or whether it's because I'm just more in tune with people who are like-minded and it's just easier to connect with those type of people now. I mean, I like to think it's a combination of the two, but it really does make a difference on who you surround yourself with. I mean, if you surround yourself with people who are negative and bring you down, that's going to be likely your mindset and that's what's Mm going to happen. And so I've always preached with my previous podcast guests. It's like you really need to surround yourself with the best of the best to enable you and to elevate you. So in that sense, you know, with all what you've accumulated in terms of your knowledge and expertise in healing people, I really want to understand your hierarchy or algorithm in treating a patient with depression. So like as a psychiatrist espoused in Western philosophy and Western medicine, and then also with a mind that is also surrounded himself with spirituality and with Eastern. So I'm that way too. And I understand where I want to tackle a patient that's fighting mental illness. I like to just take a little deep dive and understand what your approaches are. Sure. Uh, Yeah, I'm happy to. I think 
you know, speaking of depression as one example, uh, because it's probably the most common mental illness that, you know, we're facing in our society to date. And, and there's about, you know, probably 30 to 50% of people who receive the gold standard of Western medical treatment for depression are not achieving sustained symptom remission, right? So we're, we're seeing, I think, interestingly, the same for PTSD, the same for a lot of anxiety disorders. We're seeing that a very substantial percentage of people who meet the diagnostic criteria by the book, the DSM, are not achieving symptom remission. They're not recovering significantly with the treatments that we have available today, right? That are, that are in the Western, on the Western side. So that automatically presents to us an issue that needs to be tackled, right? And so I think from my standpoint, I, I think the, you know, having been in the Western paradigm and trained in the Western paradigm, seeing it from the inside, I think one of the biggest problems with it that I recognized is that when we focus on the way we talk about Western psychiatric medicine approaches to a patient, I think it's very disempowering for the patient. And what I mean by that is that the patient often feels that, that they have to continue to take something like a medicine or they have to go to therapy. They have to continue to engage in treatment that requires things from outside of themselves to get better. And all the therapists that I talk to that I know that I work with or that I've known and all the doctors all agree pretty much that it's always up to the individual to, to be the deciding factor in the healing process. And we all as individuals have to do our own work. That being said, the system itself is teaching people with giving them a diagnosis that is something that they you know, then apply to their identity, going back in time and forward in time, um, seeing the statistics about how people with depression almost never fully recover, seeing that if you take an SSRI, you have to keep taking it every day for the rest of your life or you are likely to relapse, right? That is not a promising, none of those statistics are promising to present to patients. They are real statistics, but they are also skewed based on the fact that they are pulled from a paradigm that is administering medicines in a way that makes people feel like they are they require the medicine to get better and that they have an illness that is biological in nature it's more than it is environmental in nature which is a fundamental flaw in terms of a flawed assumption about depression depression there's no evidence to date that any mental illness but particularly depression is related to any biological genetic hereditary imbalance that is like inborn into our bodies or our brains that is causing our depression. There is all the evidence to say that environmental stress and stress from trauma, past trauma, and then stress that we then impose on ourselves because of unprocessed past trauma is much more likely to be resulting in the ultimate diagnosis of depression or PTSD or whatever the, the symptoms describe. But the diagnosis is just a pattern that we use as doctors to communicate symptoms to each other and understanding of, of treatment paradigms, but it's not, for the, it's not for the client. It's not actually for the patient to use. That word is not, the, the diagnosis is never useful to them because it, it creates an illness identity disorder that you know, doesn't necessarily manifest as a disorder, but the illness identity, this association of I've, I have depression, meaning I'm a depressed person and I always will be, is fundamentally counter to the nature of I have an inner healer in myself, which is the Eastern tribal approach and the psychedelic medicine approach. I have an inner healer inside myself that is always able to heal me 
whether it's physically or mentally or emotionally, as long as I nurture it and I allow it to heal me. And, and those practices of things like gratitude, forgiveness, compassion, self-love are some examples of things that can help nurture that inner healer that then allows us to recover more effectively on our own. doesn't mean these tools of the medicines and the strategies are not helpful assistance. They just need to be used properly. Yeah, I think that's a huge realization is that these labels of disease actually, it doesn't empower the person to look into themselves inward and utilize their internal healer, right? It's just a label that we're placing on an individual and we're feeding into the disease process. Oh, something is wrong with you. Here is a pill to make you feel better. So as you were alluding to, they're looking at an external means to improve their outcome. And that's so counterintuitive to how healing has traditionally taken place, you know, through the millennia. And I, 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 and it's, it's all about our wording and how we, we phrase things. And you beautifully said, it's like, that's, that's a fundamental thing that we need to start doing as a, as, as a society, not even in the medical society, but as from peer to peers and as some relationships, but absolutely in, in the field of, of medicine. And we need to stop using these labels. It's just devastating to people. Oh, you have chronic pain syndrome, you know, or you have, you know, chronic fatigue syndrome, you know, oh, something, I mean, we just don't want to use those words to, to place labels on people. It just marries them to a, a specific illness that's not necessarily a product of who they are. Right, right. And it's, and it's not an accurate representation of, of who they are, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's not like even just the word chronic saying that you have a chronic illness or a doctor telling you that you have a treatment resistant illness. I mean, there's fewer things as doctors that we can do in one visit that is more destructive than telling someone that, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's really, it just extinguishes hope. So then how do we, how do we work together as a team with the client to, to invigorate hope, right? Rather than to extinguish it, I think is the challenge. And that's, and a lot of the answers to that question come from the studies of tribal medicine, Eastern medicine, and actually the, ancient Western medicine, the origins of Western medicine, which come from Hippocrates and Maimonides, who used all of these techniques of what they called the art of medicine, right? Which is building a relationship and a foundation of trust with your patient that facilitates the healing experience based on a, on a fundamental belief, which hopefully is, becomes more than a belief, it becomes like a knowing that we all have the ability to heal. We all can heal. And that healing starts with as Hippocrates said, I think he said, let, let food and nourishment or something be thy medicine. I'm terrible with quotes, but that was the gist, right? Okay. And so we, we have access to all of these different tools around us, but, the, but it, it's up to us to, to nourish those healing parts of ourselves that allow us to recover on a continuous and sustained basis, right? Not just having a, a short term like, oh, I, you know, I feel numb to my anxiety right now, so I feel better. That's not a long-term solution. There are actually very potent and powerful thousands of year old long-term solutions that I found are very helpful when I use them as first-line treatments 
for people with any mental illness. And I never give a diagnosis to any of my patients, by the way. And my patients will tell you that um, because, again, I feel that it doesn't serve them. Do I talk about what diagnosis I think they have with my with my colleagues that are working on the case together? Of course. But that's or not, the insurance companies. <laughs> right. Or the insurance companies. But it's not, it's not something that's useful to the client. So it's not something that we focus on in, in any way. Yeah, exactly. And and it really and they and they appreciate that actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I and I think that's part of their healing by not hearing what's wrong with them. And it's just enabling them and giving them positive feedback and telling them that they have the power to heal themselves. And you know, and that's interesting. I wanted to find out, like, so do you still use conventional medicines and pharmaceuticals for your patients? You know, and I'm assuming this is in short term while you are able to employ different tactics and strategies to help that person, you know, heal themselves. Yeah, absolutely. So I I do use traditional Western medicines. I also use a lot of natural, you know, tried and true safe supplements. I think that the, the difference between the way that I use medicines now and the way I use them in my training or the way we were taught to use them is that when I give a medicine to a patient now, whether it's an antidepressant, antipsychotic, or you know, you name it, prescription that they need, um, we've already tried a whole bunch of other stuff, right? We've tried a whole lot of other stuff. They're still struggling. And I explain the medicine differently now. Um, now that I've had more learnings in the Eastern and tribal approaches I, and the psychedelic approaches, I explain the medicine similar to the way that I would explain to somebody about how ketamine works. So I would, I would describe it as, you know, the medicine is a powerful tool that has the ability to show us a way that we can feel, right? A way that we, a new state of, of being for a certain window of time. And it does so through a biochemical process. Similarly, you can induce a different state of being with a musical process or a vibrational process in the case of Apollo, right? There's lots with touch. There's so many different ways that we can do it. In the case of medicine, it's biochemical. And so that state change is is a state in which we have the opportunity to feel, to, to know that we have the ability to feel different right? We have the ability to feel focused in the case of amphetamines. We have the ability to feel not sad all the time in the case of SSRIs. We have the ability to feel a little bit less anxious in the case of some times when other people use SSRIs for OCD and, and severe anxiety disorder. We have the, the, the experience of knowing that we don't have to hear voices in the case of antipsychotics, right? Because people can be plagued by these symptoms, like plagued, like 24-7, nonstop, brain just doing crazy things that they don't feel they have control over. So you show them for a brief amount of time that, hey, when you take this medicine, this medicine is going to show you what it feels like to be in control of this experience. And then as they're taking the medicine during the, the, the course of the medicine, which is not forever, it's like, you know, we aim for six to 12 months at most, that there is a very specific set of skills that they practice to reinforce what they're doing, what the medicine is doing for them so that they, and as we do a taper off of the medicine so that they understand how to use their skills that, that we're working on to enter these states on their own. And that's ultimately the goal is the medicine is a teacher and the experience is a teacher. And every, every experience and every medicine is, is a tool that helps us understand how to overcome challenge better in our lives. Hey, Dr. Diva here. 
Thank you to all my listeners who supported my book and helped to make it a huge success. You all have helped us hit number one in Barnes & Noble, number one in oncology, cancer, healing, and medical ebooks, and number 21 in all of the Kindle store. You've also helped us hit number three on the Wall Street Journal bestseller list. If you haven't received your copy, you can find it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or booksatmillion.com. Visit from doctor2patient.com to become part of our growing community of health and wellness aficionados and to learn more. If you like our book and podcast, please go to amazon.com to write a five-star review and go to Apple Podcasts to also write a five-star review on this podcast or any of our episodes that you've enjoyed. We need reviews to attract and secure top-notch guests for this show. Thank you so much for your support. And at what point would you start considering the tools of psychedelics? That's a, that's a good question. So, you know, I think that we're at a really interesting time as, you know, in, in medicine, as we were talking about earlier, where we have access and evidence now for the use of many psychedelic medicines that show that when used properly, according to protocol, they are actually a lot safer in terms of side effect profile than many Western medicines. And uh, ketamine is a perfect example. It's legal. It's an anesthetic that's been safely used since the 1960s, 50, 60s, 70s. Yeah. And it is extremely safe. And at the doses we use in mental health, it's extremely safe. And people n almost never have any side effects from it. And it's a very, you know, we do a short course of, you know, anywhere from nine to 12 sessions in, or six to 12 sessions in over a, a three to six week time period. Wow. And, and, and different people do it different ways. That's one mm -hmm. of the way that we do it with, you know, with the CAP protocol with Dr. Phil Wolfson and, and the medicine is, is incredibly powerful. And the experiences that people have in, in a six to 12 week, I can tell you in a six to 12 week time period, uh, sorry, in a three to six week time period with six to 12 doses of ketamine, I have seen transformations in people that it takes years to achieve with SSRIs and psychotherapy. It's amazing. Yeah. It's, it's, it's incredible. I've, I've actually been able to witness some of those things with uh, patients who have been suffering from treatment-resistant depression, which is the indication of ketamine-assisted therapy. And in these cases, these are patients who are on you know, uh, or polypharmacy, you know, multiple medications to treat their depression, helping them with sleep. And, and, and a lot of these people have, you can just look at them, you know, they're, they're obese because of the side effects from the antidepressants. They're just continuously have and display this, this depressive affect. And I have seen, and I, I'm curious about your protocol because I, I wasn't aware of Wolfson's, Wolfson's protocol. I've been doing four sessions of escalating doses of ketamine over a period of two weeks. And I've used an integrative approach where I also combine that with diet modifications um, right. so we can stimulate the gut to produce more serotonin. I'm sure that you're, you're doing that on your own as well. And, and some other modifications, that's more of an integrative approach. But yeah, and, and, and usually after one to two sessions, you can just see the light in their eyes. And it's, it's fabulous. And then it's, it's rewarding because they're, then they empower themselves and they can feel that they have control over their emotions, over their feelings. And then you start to taper off their antidepressants, you know, and then it's a little tricky sometimes, but 
yeah, then they feel even better because they're not dependent on those medications. So for my own knowledge, are you doing escalating doses when you're doing these six to 12 sessions of ketamine or is it literally the, the same you know, uh, dosing structure? Uh, it's actually, it's a case by case basis. So I think it just depends yeah. on the patient. Um, but, but more often than not, they actually stay at a steady dose the whole time. And occasionally they will go up. But we do, I do a lot of oral lozenges um, okay. at home. So the dosing is, we, we jump up by 25 milligrams each time. So in terms of how much is absorbed. So, you, you know, you don't, we don't have lozenges for every dose. So we do 25, 50, uh, 75, and 100. Um, most people fall into the 75 category. Um, occasionally, very sensitive people fall into the 50 category or the 25 category. But I, I didn't answer your question earlier, actually, about protocol because yep. I didn't. I did. You know, I think that is an interesting thing to talk about. And the way that I usually work with my clients when they come in, uh, actually, always is we start with a uh, overview of what their what their life is like, right? And and you know, what is your what are you struggling with? What is your life like? And just you know, gather as you as you do, and as most doctors and therapists do, gather a very thorough history, understanding you know. What are your stressors? What are you struggling with? And then also, what are you eating, right? What are you putting into your body? How much movement are you getting? What what drugs are you using? What substances do you put into your body? What pharmaceuticals? What prescriptions do you have? What supplements do you take? A lot of people don't think about supplements, but supplements can actually cause harm to us if we misuse them. And many people, most many of my patients actually overuse supplements, which is very, very common. And it's not, it's not a, you don't have to be, you know, a, a rocket scientist to, you know, navigate it, but, but it's confusing. It's legitimately confusing the way that supplements are sold and the way that they're told to be used. Many of them are, are they're, you know, they want to sell more pills or more products. So they recommend higher doses to people and, and that, you know, people don't really think about that. They're like, Oh, somebody's telling me to take it at this dose. That's what I'm going to take. So, so a supplement review and a medicine medication review is one of the first things that we do. And then we recommend scheduling lifestyle changes, supplement and medication and modifications that are the basic things that we can do, nutrition recommendations um, and behavioral stuff to start. Um, Then in terms of real interventions, sometimes we add a couple supplements on usually, uh, you know, some non-psychoactive cannabinoids, phytocannabinoids like CBD, CBN. Um, These things can be really helpful for people for lots of different inflammatory issues and mood issues. Um, and then Apollo, of course, which is extremely helpful for just helping retrain the body to be in an autonomically balanced state. And it has no side effects. And we've tested it on uh, lots of people out of the work at the University of Pittsburgh and now in the real world with tens of thousands mm-hmm. of users. So mm-hmm. it's been really exciting to see that that's been extremely helpful. And it's very empowering for people because it's not drug, right? So you can just you can just press a button on your body and you know, the gentle vibrations remind us that we're safe in the moment and that we can enter a state of calm or enter a state of focus or meditation or relaxation when we want and without, without so much resistance and pushback. Um, and then from there, actually, I go into more intensive psychotherapy. Usually, you know, psychotherapy and talk therapy is a component of all of this, which is a combined approach of lots of different psychotherapy disciplines. But we, so we customize it really to each person. And then I actually go to psychedelic medicine and with ketamine, which would be uh, ketamine assisted psychotherapy sessions. And then if people, if people do not achieve what their hope, what they hope to achieve from the ketamine assisted psychotherapy sessions, which is very unusual, we would then move on to thinking about prescription 
medicines. And, and this is specifically for depression, the depression. And would you consider, I mean, I know, I know it's at this time, it's in clinical trials and, you know, I'd like to hear more about your experience as a MAPS trained therapist, but at what point would you find it useful or appropriate to introduce a patient to, to consider MDMA uh, assisted psychotherapy? So, I, I mean, you, you, you name the challenge, right? So the challenge is, is the legality and access. Yep. So there are lots of people out there, you know, the, this, the results from the FDA phase two trials and, and the update from the phase three trials, I mean, the results are outstanding. And they're better than any results we've ever seen with any medicine for a mental health disorder ever. And, and they really reinforce this understanding of this in, nurturing this inner healer because there's more people who are better at one in five years out than there were right after this, the, the treatment protocol, the 12-week treatment protocol ended. And there were no additional treatments administered, right? More people are better after, years later. That never happens. So that is, is something really fascinating in terms of a, a paradigm shift with just three doses of MDMA um, for PTSD that is really incredible. And mm -hmm. so, but this medicine won't be available to us legally, likely out of a, outside of a clinical trial until 2022, 2023. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's, and that's, a, that's unfortunate because, you know, we wish we could have it sooner and cross our fingers, maybe something will happen, but it, that's what it looks like right now. And so the problem is that if you, if you're a licensed physician who, who is board certified, you can suffer consequences legally, um, if you administer these medicines underground or however, and, and for many of us, it's just not worth the risk. So, you know, ketamine is legal and that's what we focus on predominantly because when ketamine is administered properly, um, the ketamine assisted psychotherapy protocol that Phil Wilson developed is actually very, very similar to the MDMA protocol, but it's condensed into a one, three hour session instead of a, a, a an eight hour session where you sleep over afterwards. So it takes a little longer uh, you know, it's still within the 12 weeks framework. It's just more doses of ketamine than of MDMA. So there, I think I, I would love to use MDMA as a medicine. I think we're so close to getting there and to be able to do that more effectively. And I would love to be able to refer people to that. Unfortunately, I don't often because, you know, we have a, a, a very limited way for people to access these treatments. I have sent people to the clinical trials, and you should check out at maps.org um, and look into the MDMA trials, which are recruiting subjects currently um, for with, with PTSD. And there's also the Hopkins study, which is a great place that is doing um, psilocybin administration for, for depression. And I believe for terminal illness as well, like cancer mm -hmm. and things of that nature, people can go to Hopkins and, and it's an open label trial. So, so anyone who meets their, their study criteria, these, these studies are currently recruiting and, and you can participate. Mm -hmm. and, and going back to the maps. So the phase two and three trials, they're specifically for patients with PTSD correct? Or is it other mental health disorders? It's specifically PTSD. Right. And then the studies, I mean, from my understanding, it's, you know, after, it, I can't remember if it's after the 12 weeks of the three MDMA sessions along with psychotherapy, it's like, is it a 60%, not only improvement, but... I think it was like 52% improvement after, right after. Where they no longer meet the criteria of the definition of PTSD, Right. 
Right. They no longer meet diagnostic criteria after being treatment resistant for an average 17.6 years. That's incredible. And then it actually, the percentage improves after more time has elapsed. Right. So at one year, and I believe at, at five years, that percentage increases to 67% of people yeah. no longer meeting diagnostic criteria. So, so the, I mean, what could be better evidence that we're teaching people <laughs> right. how to heal themselves, right? Right. I mean, I, I personally spent a lot of time thinking about this and I can't think of any other explanation for what's happening. Yeah. Can you? <laughs> no, yeah, I, it's, yeah. yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's a wonderful to, to be a part of this process and at this time of our lives and to see that there is potentially a cure for you know, mental health illness. And which is well needed, especially during the times that we're living right now with COVID, you know, and and a lot of people who are suffering from depression and anxiety. I I really hope that the legalization will occur sooner than later. But out of curiosity, what are you anticipating when they do approve of this for depression or PTSD? Is it going to be something that's offered by physicians across the board, psychiatrists, or you know, what do you think is is how it's going to be delivered to patients? I believe that you don't have to necessarily be, a, be an MD to be one of the therapists, mm-hmm. but there has to be an MD who has a license to use the medicine, right? right? To write the prescription. So as long as you have an MD present to write the prescription, then I think you can have a PhD level or a PsyD level psychologist therapist, as well as a, non, a non-graduate level therapist can sit together. And if a doctor is present, that's great. It doesn't have to be an MD doctor. And the two therapists will administer the treatments and everyone would have uh, everyone who's administering the treatments, those eight hour therapy sessions and the integration and preparatory work over the 12 week period would have to be trained by some body that maps and the FDA approve of because the FDA has basically from my understanding is they've approved maps, the multidisciplinary mm-hmm. association for psychedelic studies as their protocol is the protocol. Mm-hmm. And so you have to be trained by them or someone that they have approved to be able to legally administer MDMA. And I assume there will be a train, there will be more training. Pro- there are training right. programs right. now, but I assume there'll be a lot more that will be popping up. The board of medicine, actually uh, we are working on our own training programs and also uh, helping to helping people distinguish what are the best training programs from that are the gold standard from those that are, less than such uh, by offering a peer-reviewed evidence-based certification uh, for those trainings. So that, I think that, you know, it's, it's worth collaborating in this way, uh, you know, again, across disciplines, I think it's really important to make sure that, you know, we maximize the information and educational opportunities available to clinicians so that right. they can deliver better public health. Mm-hmm. And that's how the transition, that's, that's how we evolve healthcare, right? Exactly. Start with, the, start with the doctors. Exactly. No, it's it's well point. It's a great point, and I look forward to you know when these programs come out. You know, I I definitely have partaken in some underground programs where I was administered MDMA, and it's been life changing for me in terms of the use of psychedelics. And yeah, uh, I'm I'm really looking forward to when this can be legally given to people above ground in a more controlled way, where the treatments and the and the patients. Uh, healing is more optimized. We've been talking a lot about pharmaceuticals and, and medications to help with this process. And obviously, you know, you were talking previously about Apollo, but aside from Apollo, which we'll get to in just a moment, what other modalities do you employ that are non-pharmaceutical for your patients in the treatment of mental health disorders? 
So I think the major, the major modalities that I work with are, I think, you know, as, as a psychiatrist and a therapist, a lot of them are thought tools and, and cognitive practices that are a combination of Eastern and Western practices, as many of them are, that I didn't come up with. I didn't, I didn't make these up, but there are things that have existed for a very long time that I have personally found very efficacious that I know have worked for many, many other people. And there's lots of, there's lots of things to talk about, but I think the, the, these really form the foundation of the work that I do with people, which are, um, as I mentioned before, the four pillars, which come from South American tribal medicine. And, and there's four pillars like this in other traditions like Buddhism and uh, traditional Hindu medicine and Ayurvedic medicine. But the four pillars that we focus on are self-gratitude, self-forgiveness, self-compassion, and self-love. And these pillars are called the four pillars because they form the foundation of trust in ourselves. And by practicing them, to nurture them as skills, like the way we would go and work out our muscles in the gym, we, we are rewiring our brain to take an, a, a gratitude-focused approach rather than a self-deprecating or self-critical approach first, as our, our first go-to, right? And, and, and so that, that retraining of, of, of ourselves by just practicing a new pattern, a new way of thinking first about something with gratitude rather than fear, for instance, is an approach that is very easy to do and takes very little extra time out of your day because you can take it with you. And so we really spend a lot of time working on you know, education about these skills and why they're important. And then also just how to practice them throughout your day. And one of the ways mm -hmm. is breath work, right? So, so being grateful when you're stressed out, when you're anxious, worried, being grateful for the opportunity to just take a breath mm -hmm. in that moment allows us to center ourselves and bring our focus of control back to something that we have control over, right? So we don't necessarily talk about this enough. I don't think we talk about it enough at all, but the source of our anxiety for the most part in our day-to-day -day lives is that we only have so much attention. We only have so much time to tend to things in our day and bring them into our awareness, right? If we are devoting a significant amount of that attention to things we don't have control over. We will feel out of control and that will make us feel anxious, worried, restless, etc. However, taking the opportunity to express gratitude for anything, but particularly for our breath and in, the, in this moment, being able to feel the air coming in and smell the air and feel our lungs filling with air and then out, instantly sends a signal to our brain that says, if I have the time to pay attention to this feeling of air coming into my lungs right now and my windpipe and my, and my chest, I can't possibly be running from a lion in this moment. And the same thing happens with soothing touch and the same thing happens with soothing music. And this creates a subconscious loop that helps to remind us that we're safe and that we can approach our decisions, our situation in our experience, whatever that is, from a position of safety, of control, of agency, rather than a position of weakness, fear, and austerity. So those little mindset shifts combined with the practices like breathwork, which is one of the most, I can't emphasize enough, the most important and free practices that we can have, uh, that we can have access to, is so critical. And then adding other things like basic stretching with the breathing. A little bit of yoga, gentle yin yoga with breathing is so amazing. Uh, calms people down so much. Soothing self-touch, pressing on your chest, pressing on the inside of the outside of our ear has a vagus nerve 
terminal. The pressing on the chest activates the vagus nerve. Gently rubbing the side of our neck will activate the vagus nerve. Pressing on the back of our heads below the neck line, the nuchal line of our skull, the base of the skull can activate the vagus nerve. So there's all these different things that we can do that are available to us in any moment. And some of them are easier to do than others. But tapping, right, is an interesting one too. So so that's that's sort of what I predominantly focus right. on. With and it, yeah, you've brought up a lot of tools. I mean, these are incredible tools, you know, with breathing, it's, it's, it's obviously available to us at any time. And it's the one action that we can perform both consciously and, and subconsciously. So it's very unique in how we can regulate our nervous system and using them in conjunction with all the things that you've mentioned. I mean, I can only imagine, you know, the, the benefit, the escalating benefit with the stacking of these modalities that people can get. And yeah, I, I had an episode that I did with someone who was versed on, on the EFT practices, which is a tapping that you mentioned. And it's wonderful to see how that can be employed and just by applying some pressure to various meridian points of the body and how that can eliminate the potential of any emotions from actually sinking into our bodies and helping it to release. So it's very valuable. And then of course, you know, which I'd like to talk to you about for a few minutes is, is the, you can also use the Apollo and this is a wonderful device. And as a pain management physician, it was making me think how this works, right? Because, you know, when we're talking about pain, you know, we can actually block specific receptors by applying pressure and vibration to a large nerve bundle that actually closes the sensation of pain that's going into the body. It's almost like when you're, you, you rub your elbow against a doorknob and you feel that discomfort. And then the immediate thing you do is subconsciously you put your other hand and you start rubbing it and that eliminates that, that pain sensation, you know, because you're stimulating the, the nerve fibers. So tell us the, the, the technology about Apollo and, and how it actually works. So the technology is um, a wearable. It's a, about the size of an old Fitbit and in its first first version. And it can be worn on the ankle or the wrist. And we developed it out of research at the University of Pittsburgh on treatment-resistant PTSD and, and treatment-resistant depression and trying to help people. Because, because what we found was that the body was showing signs in people who had these disorders, was showing signs, and people were saying that they were not feeling safe. They were feeling afraid all the time and fearful all the time. And their bodies were showing it. They had high resting heart rate much of the time, um, low heart rate variability, which is a sign of, of resilience and balance of the nervous systems, uh, the autonomic nervous system. And we see lots of these signs over and over and over again that have been published in literature showing this, this imbalance and, and with these disorders. So we said, okay, well, if people are not feeling safe, what helps them feel better? And the natural techniques that help them are the same ones we've been talking about, soothing touch, soothing music, you know, deep breathing and, and mindfulness exercises. But those techniques either are difficult to use in real time or they require thousands of hours of practice to get really good enough at them to use them in real time under stress or under perceived threat, like to get out of a flashback if you have severe PTSD, for instance, right? So... What we were trying to do, and the challenge was at the university, and this was starting in about 2014, was how do we come up with a technology that people can take out of the office? Because we can help people feel safe in the office. That's what we're good at. But when they leave, they oftentimes feel terrible again, and we don't have anything to give them other than medicine. So, and, and these techniques that require tons of practice. So could we make something that taps into the evolutionary 
pathway of safety, the most, the most evolutionarily conserved safety pathway, which is touch. Touch has been the best way to deliver safety signals to the brain going back tens of millions of years to ancient mammals. And, and so it's, it's highly conserved in us. And that means that the, that the pathways of, of soothing touch on our skin to the safety part of our brain, that, that were the fear center, the amygdala, is very strong. Very, very, very strong and very fast in terms of, the, of a pathway. So we said, can we figure out the right signal to send to the skin to induce these states of safety that people could achieve with deep breathing or meditation or yoga or stretching or any of the things? So we just started diving into the literature, reviewing everything that anybody had done on any kind of stimulation to the, to the body, electrical, sound, vibrational, whatever, massage, and then try, acupuncture, try to understand what worked the best, what didn't work for people. And then in the lab, doing experimentation with ourselves and with other people at first, and just trying to figure out what patterns worked. And then one day, we finally found a pattern that is actually the clear and focus setting, uh, which was the first pattern that we discovered. And we put it on. And it was the first time that we put it on. And we instantly felt so <laughs> nice. <laughs> And, and it was just amazing. It was, and and it felt, it felt nice, but, but not sedating, right? It was like, it was like flow. It was like clear and focused flow. And then we called it the freshness and we put it into a wearable prototype that my wife raised uh, funding to build, who's the CEO of Apollo Neuro um, and the business brains of the operation. And then she, uh, and then we tested it on thousands of people in the real world and in some clinical trials. And we showed there was repeatability. Of the findings, and, and we showed that not only could we repeat that that one clear and focused experience, we also had created an algorithm that helped us to understand from our clinical trials that slight changes to these patterns could produce relatively reliable outcomes in people in terms of shifting of of wakefulness up or down, or uh, or energy up or down, or mood and uh, up or down, and and some other things too, like pain, modulation, creativity. Um, and it's all by changing the signals that we're sending to the touch receptors on the skin, which change the way that our brains perceive how safe we are. And the more safe we are, the more we are able to really dive into our experience without fear. You have various modes in your app, and like the clear and focus to sleep, and then there's awake. I'm probably not saying the the words correctly, but how are these signals different from one selection to the other? And do they pretty much have different oscillations and vibration frequencies that manipulate and change our our brain chemistry or our firing patterns? Yeah. So we've done some EEG studies. I can't tell you for sure that we're changing which specific firing patterns we're changing at this point, but behaviorally we see that the the patterns reliably Mm -hmm. change behavior. And they change the way people feel and they change biometrics like heart rate, like heart rate variability and like uh, sleep metrics. And when we track it over time with like Oura Ring, for instance, in the real world. So, the, and, and so, so to answer your first question, all the waveforms are different. There's seven modes and the patterns are gentle vibrations that feel, um, they're supposed to be barely noticeable. You can adjust the intensity level up and down in the app to make it more noticeable or less noticeable, but the goal is for it to be just barely noticeable when you use it. And then at that threshold of sensitivity is where the, the, the frequency patterns of vibrations, they tend to augment presentness. And that's really what we're focusing on is augmenting presentness, not creating something that's like a distracting escape because it doesn't serve us in the long run. 
So the, so the patterns all, regardless of which one you use, they all help augment presentness toward a specific goal. And that goal could be waking up or energy at the, at the highest, most stimulating level, and then going down to the, into the slightly less stimulating modes that, that are more calming. The social and open is like social flow, creative mm-hmm. flow. They're all really designed to sort of enter, help people enter these present flow states. Clear and focused is like deep workflow, deep sustained focus, kind of like taking an amphetamine, but it's non-chemical and it increases like sustained attention for a long period of time on one thing. And again, these were all waveforms that we tested in part in our original clinical trials at the University of Pittsburgh. And then there's rebuild and recover, which helps people wind down. That's the most balanced mode. That's roughly equal sympathetic and parasympathetic tone. And that's for really helping the body wind down quickly after exercise or any intense mental, physical, emotional stress or after travel. And then we get into the very calming mode. So that's meditation, mindfulness, which augments meditative states. And people have told us is great for, for pain, nerve pain and chronic pain, fibromyalgia, things like that. Then going down from there is relax and unwind, which is like deep relaxation before bed. And that's one of the most deeply calming modes um, that many people have compared to sort of like a cannabis indica effect but without the without the, right. know, the psychedelic uh, aspects of the THC, and then and then the last one is sleep, which is right. self-explanatory. And with these frequencies that are um, utilized, is there any side effects from these from using it during the duration when it's on, or are we able to use it multiple times during the day? And does it last even when the actual frequencies are turned off? Yeah, so those are, good, those are good questions. So there's no side effects. The, the vibration patterns that we use are all sound waves. So they're the same frequency patterns that would come out of a speaker or a subwoofer in the, on the low end of a song. Um, so they're, they're you know, universally found to be safe, especially at the levels we're delivering them to the body. The decibel levels are extremely low and they're basically sub-audible. You can't hear them. So there's no risk to using Apollo as often as you like. People use it all the time. Usually when they first get it, they use it multiple times a day, every day, and wear it all day. And then they'll find modes that they like and then just activate it with the buttons to turn it on when they want to boost. And then over time, what happens, what we see in the usage patterns is after about somewhere between three and six months, we start to see people really taper off their usage, not completely, but to use the device more intentionally. So instead of using it all day, they'll use it a couple times a day specifically to wake up and to fall asleep or specifically to fall asleep mm-hmm. and to focus. And that has been really interesting because people we're seeing are not becoming dependent on it. They're using it as a tool to teach them, which is again, the goal of, of the healing process with mm-hmm. medicine and, and any techniques that we use, they're using the tool to teach them how to do this on their own. And that's been really exciting. So I think that's really the goal of all of this is to empower people to understand that we have the ability to change the way we feel. Part of it is our intention, right? And where we direct our attention. And the other part of it is the tools or the people that, as you said earlier, our friends that we surround ourselves by. And the better the tools we have available to us, the better, the better we are at using those tools and the better the foundation we have in terms of the the skill sets that we that we need to nurture ourselves, and the better chances we have at at feeling good and, and performing very well on a consistent basis. And what I'm also curious about is, were you able to measure the time period that elapsed before one actually sees improved HRV 
improve sleep? Is it immediate or is it something that has to be used over, I don't know, two to four weeks? Uh, oh yeah. And, and yeah, before I get to that, your other, so the HRV and the biometric changes are more complicated to explain, which I'll explain in a second, because they're difficult to measure based on the measurement tools available to us. Uh, not to us, but to the, to the world right now. Um, the, the effects of Apollo do tend to last after yeah. the, vibra- the vibration has stopped, um, which is the last thing I've got to say. Usually it's about the duration we found as how long 15 minutes of soothing touch lasts, typically 30 minutes to two hours afterwards. So we have seen roughly the same thing, which is about 15, similar to touch, 15 to 30 minutes of use of Apollo will last people an additional 30 minutes to two hours afterwards, which is great. And, and the more people use it, the more sensitive they become to it. So the quicker they notice the effects and the longer the effects mm-hmm. last afterwards. Um, so there's a, there's a learning effect that we see, which is, you know, as you and I both know, conditioning is one of the most important ways that we learn by training our, retraining our brains. In this case, it's from the body first, bottom up, rather than telling the brain to do something and then having the body have to act on it. We're, we're acting on the body first and then the brain Falls in, falls in line. So the, so the changes can be measured on different timescales, like, like the HRV changes, the heart rate changes, but it just it depends on how clean the measurement environment is. So the, the gold standard for measuring heart rate and HRV, heart rate variability, is an EKG machine, which should be measuring somebody in a relatively uh, quiet area with the person not moving, and, and there should be, you know, some, some protection from noise, like audible noise and also electromagnetic noise. So there's no interference in, in the measurements because these are electrical measurements. This is not typically the way that people measure HRV in the real world because most people don't have access to these lab grade systems and, and spaces. So when we did our first trial with Apollo, we actually demonstrated that in one of these clinical grade laboratories at the University of Pittsburgh, that we see... HRV improve under stress significantly within wow. three minutes. And we see, and, and this improvement in HRV with Apollo directly correlates to the amount of performance improvement, up to 25% improvement on accuracy, cognitive accuracy. So you think about that's like, that's like getting 25% better on a test so, yeah. just because you're more calm and present in the experience and not less, you're not thinking about, you're not thinking about the last question you might have gotten wrong. You're just yeah. in the moment, focused on what you're doing, 100%, or as much of, as much of a you as you can. And that, that is what I think is really fascinating is in terms of what we're showing is the more you balance the nervous system, the better Performance. we feel and the better yep. we perform and the better yep. we recover, right? It's, 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 a, it's a whole ecosystem of improvement. And we can do this on our own but Apollo is just one more tool for those of us who have never learned how to do this and really is an incredible help. And, and the hope is, is that with all these tools that we've talked about in the last hour, it's allowing the person to give them the tools to have more autonomy on their overall health and, and give them the sense of control that they can balance you know, their nervous system on their own without having to use conventional pharmaceuticals or having extrinsic types of tools that are able to modulate the system. We want them to be able to do it internally on their own. And these are the tools that we're able to provide them to help use those skills. That's exactly right. And, and, and it's important, you know, to really know how mm-hmm. to use the tools. For instance, just based, you know, going back to what we were just talking about, home consumer wearables like 
that I that I love, many of them, Apple Watch, Aura Ring, Whoop, the Garmin devices, Fitbits, these tools are really fun, but they are not clinical grade tools. They are not laboratory grade tools and they're not being used in a controlled environment. So it's really, really important to understand that that data is ex- there's extreme right. variability in that data. And so it's it's not useful most of the time to look at it on a on a data point to data point basis. We have to use it to trend. Trends are useful and we want to trend our HRV up, we want to trend our sleep metrics up, we want to trend our resting heart rate down. That's the stuff that matters. The day-to-day stuff, yeah. it's not not as important unless you're really trying to figure out, you know, that you shouldn't drink <laughs> as much alcohol before you go to bed, right? <laughs> I mean, other than that, it's not, you know, it's not right. really that useful to look at the day-to-day. Right. But but that's really critical because a lot of people expect that they're going to make a behavior change, like starting to exercise a little more every 30 minutes a day, and they're going to see a significant boost in HRV right away. That's not going to happen. You know, it's not going to see it right when you start meditating. You're going to see that happen over the course of of, of weeks to months. Couldn't agree more. Well, Dr. Dave, thank you so much for being on the show today. There are so many tools that we've talked about and so much great information for people. I really appreciate the opportunity to have a chat with you. Um, if people want to find out more about you, Apollo, and any information that you might have on the net, what's the best way for them to to search for you? So if you want to fi- find out about Apollo, you can go to apolloneuro.com, A-P-O-L-L-O-N-E-U-R-O.com, or apolloneuroscience.com will also work. Um, and you can follow, we're also on socials, um, and you could follow me uh, on socials and reach out to me uh, is that's a great way to get in touch. Um, it's always great to hear from you. My Twitter is at Dave Rabin and my Instagram is at Dr. David Rabin. And if you would like to check out my clinical practice website, that's drdave.io. Uh, and the board of medicine is theboardofmedicine.org. Thanks again, Dave. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. <laughs>